Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers, to the engineers, to the business people behind the scenes, over the years, every member of the pro audio corner of the music industry has become family to me, and it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in pro audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Today we're chatting with Robert Scoville. He's a concert sound mixer, educator, writer, and producer. He's also the senior specialist for live sound products at Avid Technology. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Karen. So <laughs> good to see you again. <laughs> it's nice to see you too. I, I'm looking forward to the day we can actually see each other in person. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was I, not to jump on the conversation here, but I was kind of thinking back this morning. I was like, "Wow, me, you know, me and Karen have been kind of rolling in the same circles or in the same orbit here for a long time now." Right. Right. And it's been twenty, thirty years easy now. So yeah. Well, I was going to say um, the first time I really remember doing anything with you is you invited us to the Tom Petty concert at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Oh my gosh! Was that the first time? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd met you at Tech Awards, but that was yeah. the first time. And your hair was quite a bit longer then. <laughs> and a different color. Yeah, that's true. This is what I remember about that concert. It was great, but this is what I remember. It was really crowded. So we're, there's no chairs. We're in the middle of the floor. And I'm a native Californian. And I've so earthquakes forever, right? But I yeah. get that sick feeling every time the earth moves. There were so many people on this floor and jumping up and down that the whole time the floor was, was just, moving. The floor was moving. I had to go find the wall in the back so I could lead against <laughs> something. That is my big memory of that concert. Yeah, that's the truth there. I mean, because it's upstairs, you know. I yeah. mean that that floor is definitely floating, and I have felt it move on more than one occasion. That is for sure. Does being a front of house engineer help you avoid that crunch of people? I mean, do you ever experience like? What I was experiencing that, do you get that where you are in the, on the floor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I mean, not for nothing. I mean, I always ask to be actually on the floor. I don't want to be on like a riser or any of that stuff because, because of the acoustical properties of it, you know, it kind of messes right. with your perception of, you know, bottom end and things like that. So I always ask to be on the floor. I, I'll tell you another place that you noticed that is, uh, was at Madison Square Garden. It's the same thing. Right. right. When you're on the floor there, I mean, if the, if the people get moving on that floor, you can feel that floor oscillate, you know? It just makes me feel sick. Same thing. Where else is like that? Uh, Earl's Court is like that in London, too, because it was built on top of a swimming pool. It was built on top of the Olympic swimming pool. So same, same deal. Do you ever get a feeling of claustrophobia when you're with so many people so close to you? No, I, I don't. I can honestly say I've never really experienced that. Now, that's not to say I haven't been uneasy in a big crowd. I, there's been a couple of times where I've thought, okay, this could go really wrong here. And, you know, let's, let's have an exit plan here. Well, let's talk about that one. That's not part of these questions, but <laughs> let's go into that. Well, you know, most of it was really in, you know, in other parts of the world. I don't know that I've ever experienced that in America. Uh-huh. Uh, although I, you know, thinking of something like the Guns N' Roses thing in St. Louis and stuff, you know, that, I mean, your life would have been in danger out there if you would have been there trying to protect gear, uh-huh. you know, your life would have been in danger. But, you know, the places I've experienced it are particularly in Latin America. I think that's probably the most extreme example of it where, you know, you just, you know, it's one of those things It's like, man, I hope the PA doesn't go off. I hope we don't have any incidents here because this crowd is on the edge. 
you know, and I mean, down there, it's, you know, fireworks, everything, you know, right. and no rules, so to speak, you know. Now, that said, most of the places are protected by armed <laughs> security guards, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but you're right in the middle of it, you know, and you just think, okay, I may not be able to get out of this so easy if things go really left here, you know. Yeah. I, that's the only time, honestly, I've ever felt a little uncomfortable. Uh -huh. Okay. You've been a front of house sound mixer since 1979. Yeah. So yeah. what are some of the first clubs you mixed for? And what are some of the first bands you worked with? Well, you know, some, I, I mean, I'm this, I'm an oddball here. I, I mean, I'm, I'm an outlier because I did very little club mixing in the beginning. You know, I mean, I was, I, I was kind of going to a technical school at the time, uh -huh. you know, at, in 1979, I mean, you know, I mean, I kind of knew what I wanted to do when I was in high school. I had got some sense of it because I was a, avid concert goer when but I was that's in pretty school. interesting though that you would know that early because it seems like a lot yeah. of people don't even realize that's a career path well i had this chance meeting i you know this has been publicized i don't know if you've ever read the story or know about it but i had this really complete chance encounter uh with russell pope of Supertramp when yeah. i was about 14 years old total chance encounter and it set me on my path. I, I walked out of that concert going, I, I know what I want to do. I want to do that guy's job right uh -huh. there. You know, up to that point, I wanted to be Mitch Mitchell in the Jimi Hendrix experience. <laughs> but, but after that, I was like, no, I want to do that guy's job. Because, uh -huh. you know, I also realized he worked on the records. He also did the sound. I was like, oh, man, come on. That's, that's where I want to be. But, of course, it's 19, you know, the mid-1970s. I right. mean, we're only four or five years removed from Woodstock, you know. Mm -hmm. And to ask your counselor what you know, how do I get into this business? I mean, he didn't have a clue. You know? Right. I, who had a clue sitting in the middle of the middle of the country? So right. he kind of suggested I go to a technical school. And so I went to started started studying toward a double E in electronic engineering. And didn't take me very long to be there to go, this isn't what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I mean it's related to what I want to do, but this, you know, nobody's coming out of there being a recording engineer or a sound mixer. Uh, and just happened to hook up, just total random chance, with a, a regional sound company who kind of posted a, a flyer for some help. And long story short, Reader's Digest version, you know, I got in with that company, uh, was doing shows at a pretty high level right out of the gate, uh, and then hooked up with a band uh, in Kansas City that had uh, had a pretty sizable record and broke uh, nationally, a band called Shooting Star out of Kansas City. Uh -huh. So. I was working for them when I was, I mean, I was a pup, man. I was just had probably just barely turned 21 years old. And we were touring the nation and opening for everybody from ZZ Top to Jefferson Starship to Journey to, you know, you name it, Kansas, everybody, you know. So, I, I mean, I, and I was smart enough, luckily, at that time to kind of leverage that into contacts and into a career. So, uh, but I, you know, I, I kind of skipped over the clubs. I mean, we did clubs with Shooting Stars. Sure. You know, but they were They were big club gigs. They were more like mini concerts. I didn't really, I didn't really grind it out in the club club scene for oh, years. That's a good thing for you. Well, I and in hindsight, I think it was a good thing, you know, because I see at least for a period of years there, I saw so many guys come out of the club scene and try to make that transition into uh -huh. arenas and stuff and really struggle, you know, because it was a school of hard knocks. You know, you right. kind of get all these really horrible habits built that really get revealed when you get out into a big arena. And I, I never had that situation. You know, I, I kind of went through the school of hard knocks in the arenas. You got thrown into high-level stuff, right? Mm -hmm. How did you not just wallow in fear and just be afraid to do anything? 
Because I can't imagine you knew everything you should be doing. Oh, no, I didn't. I, I didn't by a long shot. Uh, but, I, you know, I was a pretty driven person, for God. one. I, I knew that. And, you know, this may, we may circle back around to this at some point. But, you know, I mean, it sounds so weird to kind of couple these two things. But my, I think my, in my youth, all of my stuff in athletics, right, yeah. played into that. Because, you know, you, you, you kind of, you know, you kind of live in that world of, you know, success is built on failures. You know, you've got to get out and fail multiple times before you're actually really, really going to get it. Right. So I wasn't scared of failing at all, you know, out there and, and did a couple of times. I mean, you know, I had a, an incident with an artist, uh, I'll just say from Indiana and <laughs> <laughs> where, you know, I felt very confident that I could handle the gig. I thought I was going to be really and I was really, really wanted this gig. And, but, and technically, uh, in terms of workflow, all that stuff, I could absolutely handle the gig. What I couldn't handle was the guy. Like I, I didn't have the personality. Uh-huh. I didn't have the credibility yet to manage the artist, you know, to manage that interaction with the artist. And I failed. I mean, they fired me you know, or he fired me, I should say, just uh-huh. to say it, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'll never give him credit for it, but you know, that, that wake up in the morning and that look in the mirror of, okay, maybe we're not quite who we think we are right now. Let's, let's get back on track and get right. it together here. You know, you start to, if you can face it, start to realize some of your shortcomings and go after them. How important is your ability to be able to manage an artist as opposed to your technical skills and being able to do the job? How is that balanced with being able to manage the artist and be able to get along with the artist and produce what he wants at a sound that you want it to sound like. I think as a front of house engineer, that is super important. Now, I mean, there, there are certainly acts where you're kept separated, right. you know, and, uh, but I think as a front of house engineer, if you're going to, if you're going to try to work with that artist and take their vision of what their music is out to the audience, because you're the umbilical cord, right? Right. With, right. Without you there, the audience has no perception of what you're doing. So you are going to interpret his music and present it to that audience, you know, and really the sooner you can cross that bridge with the artist and, and get collaborative with it, the better it is. I mean, the more powerful it is. Now that said, you've got to be able to hang in that environment. Like you've got to be able to hang at the artist level, you know, and they are usually, usually I've been lucky enough to work with some artists that, that transcend this, but usually they're not technical, you know, they're musical. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, they're thinking you got to talk the language of music to them, not technology. And if you can do that and build some collective vision, you can have some really, really outstanding results with it. You know, because you do, you you end up kind of working like a producer in that sense. You really do. It's very similar to the to a studio workflow in that sense. You're just not creating songs. You're just creating a show. Do they know? Do the artists always know exactly what they want though? Because like for me, a lot of times, if I'm doing photography, I know in my head what I'm trying to get but i don't know how to explain it to anybody yeah no it's that's very common in that world and you've got to kind of become a translator soothsayer however you want to you know you, you got to be able to drag it out of them a little bit you know uh and do that in in definitely in a non-threatening way you know if they if right. they start to see you as a threat i mean good grief your your time is going to be limited you know yeah that's why it's got to be it's got to be collaborative but they you know you always have to leave the artist with the sense that they're in charge and sure. they are right but at the end of the day, you have to be able to, to interpret that and present it. You know? Right. Now, uh, someone coming out of a school, Crafts, Berkeley, wherever, and they want to get into live sound. Yeah. And they hear this podcast and they go, oh, 
I have to know how to manage an artist. How do, how do you learn those skills? It takes reps. It just takes time. I mean, I think some people innately have that ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I, I, I've always stood by this, and I still stand by this, that if you are going to be a mixer, right, you're going to be a mixer of music, then you've got to have music sensibilities. Right. And that's why I've, I've, I've said this before, and I still stand by it. That's why I think musicians make better mixers than non-musicians. You give me someone who is thinking and listening musically and mm-hmm. put them in front of the technology, put them in front of technology they know nothing about, and take somebody who knows everything about the technology but nothing about the music, my bet is on the musician getting a better sounding result. Right. That's interesting. Now, did you play any instruments growing up? Yeah. Yeah, I was a drummer. A drummer. drummer. Yeah. Okay. And it and it played to my advantage. Absolutely played to my advantage. Certainly at the time. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, at that time in kind of sound reinforcement history, music history, if you could get good drum sounds, whether you were in the studio or live, you were gonna get work. Mm-hmm. I mean, no no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And yeah, you know, I mean I studied drumming like a fiend for years. And, and even after I started engineering stuff, I stayed, you know, with drumming, I still played in some bands and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, locally and things like that, you know, and again, it was really all just to keep your music sensibility going, you know. And it's an illustration of what you just said. You were a drummer, so you were able to go in and technically achieve the drum sound that they wanted. Yeah, I, it's like, you know, I've said this to, I, I say this to students a lot when they when we talk about mixing, and it's why I, I, I actually wish the schools, the technical schools, did a little better job of teaching music appreciation and music production appreciation and music sensibility. And, and it always sounds so fluffy when you're saying it, but it's the truth. Like when I go into an, to a show or in with an artist, I, I already know what the mix sounds like. I, I've got it right uh-huh. here in my noggin. It's just a matter of executing it with the technology. You know, to me, it's no different than the painter, right? They've already got the painting. It's just, it's coming out of them in brushstrokes, right. you know? Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the antithesis of that is somebody who just jumps up to the console, not really knowing what it's going to sound like. And just starts turning and searching, you know, it's like, that's, there's no skill in that, you know, that's right. just hunting pair. Yeah. You worked with Tom Petty forever. <laughs> Not forever, forever. But a long time. <laughs> About 25 years. Yeah. yeah. It seems to me that you come to a point where you, be, you go from being, it's a client work um, process to a client friend to even like extended family, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems to me that's what it was like with you and Tom and the whole group. Yeah, you know, it's a weird thing, uh, the relationship I had Tom, with Tom. I shouldn't say it's weird. It, it just, you know, kind of what it was founded on is kind of weird. Because, you know, they they had been recruiting me. Like, you know, I mean, I, I mean I've, I've even said this to Tom and to other guys. You know, throughout the 80s and stuff, I mean, I really wasn't the biggest Tom Petty fan. I, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I loved the records, his early records. I loved how they sounded, all those sort of things. But I was like, I, I, I my head was in a very, very different space. I was working on completely different music. Uh-huh. And I think it was, I really believe it was through the time that Mike Shipley was working on uh, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, that uh-huh. record for, for Tom. He, he mixed that record for him. And he was working for Def Leppard at the time, and so was I. And we had some talks about it, and he goes, dude, this Tom Petty record I'm working on, it's the greatest thing I've ever done. He says, you ever get the chance to work with this band or these, this organization, he said, you need to jump on it. He said, it's just the, the best thing you're ever going to be around. 
And I kind of put that in my pocket. I, all of a sudden, I started thinking about Tom Petty a little differently. And then they started, not long after that, they started recruiting me. And we just through tour schedules, et cetera, we couldn't get it to hook okay. up until around Wildflowers, right after Wildflowers came out. And they came after me again. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And same sort of thing. You know, I, I came into it kind of hindsight 2020. Now I came into it not really understanding what Tom Betty and the Heartbreakers were. Mm-hmm. But after about three days there, I was like, I'm going to be mixing this till I retire. I, this yeah. is the greatest thing I've ever been around in my life. You know, I mean, you, all of a sudden I saw where all of that music came from. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then on top of it, Tom and I have had a very, very similar sense of humor. So our first conversations <laughs> were the, kind of this little dance to kind of see where everybody's coming from. And then we realized, oh my gosh, we both think exactly the same things are funny. Which is <laughs> scary. That's really scary. Yeah. yeah. And so we, it was this constant 25 years of little one-liners and comebacks and all these things that were just, you know, perfectly timed. And we, we, we hit it off really well. What made it so special that you could know it that early? You know, it, it was just so unlike anything I had ever been around musically i mean in terms of personnel and bands you know i mean keep in mind up to that point i mean i'd worked with you know everything from laurie anderson to alice cooper to air supply to def leppard to rush you know all these yeah all these bands and i'd never been around an ensemble like this because i remember the the first week i was in rehearsals with them i had kind of set up in a separate room kind of a control room kind of atmosphere there and they were in the other in, in the other room and I mean, I, this is no exaggeration, Karen, for the first five days of rehearsals, they didn't play one Tom Petty song. I mean, we were only going to be in rehearsals for a couple of weeks, you know? <laughs> so what did they do? It was all cover songs. Hey, let's wow. do that Johnny Cash thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, oh, no, no, I love this record. Let's do this song, you know? It was just days of that. And it took me a little bit to realize what they were doing was getting reacquainted musically. Mm-hmm. You know, they were kind of finding their space in the room and stuff. Right. And they had already been a band at that point, you know, 10, 15 years. I mean, you know, they don't need to do the songs over and over and over again to get ready for the tour. But, you know, <laughs> kind of Steve Ferroni and I were in the same spot because he was the new guy. Uh-huh. And I was the new guy. And I remember sitting at that rehearsal thinking, man, I might get to the first show having never mixed a single Tom <laughs> Petty song here, you know. <laughs> so it, it was a really, really interesting time. But, you know, if you were paying attention there, you were just like, oh, my gosh, these guys. These guys have it. And then, yeah. of course, you know, you got to see it at the Fillmore. The Fillmore was the kind of the, the acid test textbook example of that. You know, yeah. I mean, where every night was different. You right. know, just calling out songs, you know, whatever. I mean, that, that band had the most collective or collectively had the most intensive music IQ and retention of any band I've ever been around. And second place is not close. I mean, it's wow. incredible. Keeps you on your toes, right? Oh, big time, big time. And it, that was part of the love I had for it, honestly, is that, uh-huh. you know, they always, you know, we always talk about the hang. Well, right. their thing was, you have to be able to throw down. Like when we call it out, you got to be able to throw down and deal and, uh-huh. and, and mix it, you know? And luckily, I mean, I had so much background from my parents and country music of the 60s and you know, R&B, all this stuff. So I had all this already imprinted and it just kind of regurgitated itself out through that band, you know. See, and I think that's kind of a sports thing too, right? Because you're given a challenge and and you're not going to not do it. You want to excel at it, right? No, and if you want to level up, you need to to take on the hard gig, not not the easy one. You got to take on the challenge, not, not take the easy workout. 
right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> same thing. Same yeah. thing there. Um, Tom passed unexpectedly. Yes. And yes. it was devastating for a lot of people. And more people than I could ever imagine, honestly. I mean, yeah. it's, I, I don't think I, maybe, I don't, maybe don't think any of us really understood until he passed what kind of real impact he was having, not only on his fans, but on the world there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm wondering you as part of his family for 25 years, yeah. how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you think about moving forward and working with anybody else after that kind of situation? Man, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm honestly not even sure how to answer it. You know, I go through days. I certainly went through days early on where it was really, really difficult. I mean, really difficult because, you know, I think part of the thing that made it so, so difficult was that the guy was just so full of integrity, you know, like, you know, I, I mean, I, I heard people talk about, well, you know, with that hip problem, he shouldn't have gone out on the road. You know, that killed him. Right. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's, if you believe that you, it, you don't know the Tom Petty that I knew because, you know, Tom was one of those guys. I mean, he didn't have to tour. Right. You know, he didn't have to tour. I mean, he has, he had plenty of things to keep him from touring. And frankly, I don't know that he, he enjoyed touring all that much. He certainly enjoys the studio and the creative process and all that kind of stuff more, but he still likes to go out on tour. But I remember him saying a couple of times, he's like, hey, man, I got people counting on me, mm-hmm. you know, meaning his band, right. his crew, all of these people. Right. And that's why he went out and did it, you know. You couldn't have stopped him if you wanted to stop him. There's no way you were going to do that. And, you know, I just never forgot that. I just always thought, man, that is, that is walking the walk right yeah. there. You know? right. So, you know, I talked to him, I don't know, two days before he passed, three days before he passed. It wasn't long after our last show at the Hollywood Bowl. And we were already making plans for what we were going to do next summer. I mean, it was already already about the next thing. I mean, he was so pumped after that last tour. That was the most animated, the most celebratory I've ever seen him after a tour. I mean, he was juiced after that tour. Just had so much fun out there doing it. Right. Even with the hip, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah, I have trouble dealing with it sometimes. Um, I, I mean, I have Tom Petty radios on my presets on Sirius XM, you know, and there are times when I can listen to it. And there are just times where it's just too painful. It's just too painful. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'll never forget the working experience. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it changes your community, right? Like someone like that, who's such a, uh, an important part of your community is gone. Yeah. Well, it's such an important part of my life. I mean, my kids grew up with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I mean, I had my, you know, my kids as babies out on the road with us and they, you know, they know it all the way through. I mean, you know, not for nothing. I mean, he changed the arc of my career and my life. Mm -hmm. There was no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, I mean, that was, that was a big step up for me uh, to take that and and pull it off. Yeah. Let's switch to something a little different. (laughs) Thanks for bringing me down, Karen. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I think it's important for people to understand, you know, and yeah. not, not everybody's going to get that opportunity. And well, it, it was the dream gig. I, I, it sounds so fluffy and cliche to say it all the time, you know, but man, that was the dream gig. I mean, you, you know, you don't, not going to see people tour like that very much anymore. I mean, that kind of, that, the, the closeness of that touring ensemble, meaning the guy, the band and that crew, man, I mean, it was in lockstep 
I yeah. mean, it, it was just a well, well oiled machine. You ask anybody, you know, where we came in to do shows, they always walked away going, wow, that's the best organization I've ever been around in my life, you know? How lucky for you to be able to be oh, a part of it. Good grief. Good grief. Who knew? Yeah. Well, those are always the best things, the ones you kind of stumble into and you don't really know how great it's going to be for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. If we just go back to that student who's graduated and they're trying to decide whether they want to do live sound or they want to go into the studio. Yeah. What are there certain characteristics that will that that show, you know, show that you maybe you're better at live sound and, and you're will be good in that lifestyle? Or do you think Yeah, I, I don't you know, that's a good question. I, I think there's a lot of moving parts to the answer to that. Uh I mean, I'll I'll just use me as an example, okay? Because I did a lot of studio work as well. I mean, I had my own label at one time, owned my own studio, was trying to cultivate talent and get it signed, et cetera. And, you know, at some point, you know, doing both of those things, I kind of had the realization of, you know, I'm built better for this other thing. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think, you know, one of the biggest assets that I have going for me on the road is that I, I was an only child mm -hmm. and I can keep myself entertained. You know, I. You know, I solitude is okay with me. I'm okay with that because you're going to have a lot of time like that on the road sometimes, uh, yeah. especially in hotels, et cetera. And you know, people that people that take that solitude, they either take it and use it, or they take it and abuse it. It usually is their undoing or their you know their part of their success. Right. So I think that part of the personality has to come into it. You know, you've got to be able to entertain yourself. But you've also got to be able to hang with other people because touring is certainly the way we were doing touring over, over the last, you know, that 20 years of 1980 through 2000. I mean, you're around people, you know, everybody overuses the word family. It, it is like family, but it's, it's worse <laughs> you know, because you're around the same people that you work with. You're going to eat three meals a day with them. You're going to get on the bus and sleep with them. You're going to go to the next city. You're going to do this all over again, all under stress and tension. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, even your family, you can get away from, you know, right. when you go to work every day, you know, that kind of thing. That's not the case there. You're around them every day. So whether so, or not you like them, you're stuck with them. Yeah. Yeah. So you better have some ability to deal with that kind of thing, you know, and you know, be able to deal with personalities that might grate on you, you know, because not everybody's a summer breeze out there, as Tom would every say sometimes. Yeah. You know, so, you know, you got to, you got to have some, uh, you got to have some conflict resolution skills. Uh -huh. You got to have some responsibility skills. I mean, you're on the hook to get that working every single day, you know, and every day the house lights are going to go out at eight o'clock, whether you're ready or not. You right. know, so. You know, it's, it's a very, very different mentality to the studio. Very mm -hmm. different. Very, very different. So you kind of got to see what you're made of and whether you can do it. Some people are cut out to sit in a studio, sit behind a console for 10, 12 hours a day. Uh, I, I certainly did that for a while. It was not my thing. I was just like, no, I've got to be out. You know, there, there was always, certainly in touring too, there's a physical aspect to it. You know, there's this physicality to it. You're going to be tired. You're going to be on the road. You're going to be moving. You're going to be moving stuff. You're going to be every day is going to have a different look and feel and sound to it. You know, so you got to be able to adapt and overcome all kinds of things. I, right. I, I love that kind of challenge. I'm, right. I'm built to do that. You know, speaking of physicality, 
your workout stuff is crazy. <laughs> you do these triathlons, really? <laughs> you do these bike things that go way too many miles and way up too high. Yeah. And I think it's a little crazy. Um, but I've been talking to my wife, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a couple of things. Um, one is, okay, we were talking earlier before I started recording that I've been in, I was in competitive sports through most of my life. I still work out a lot, but it's so hard. Like it's dark at 6 a.m. now. I usually, I'll go walk the dogs for a couple, two, three miles at 6 a.m. But it's hard to get out of bed. I know the night before I'll be, okay, I'm going to do this. We're going to go get it in. <laughs> I'll be done by seven. I can get Talk is cheap, Karen. Talk is cheap. Oh, I know. Cheap. I know. So <laughs> you don't, you don't seem to be that way. Is no, it, like I said, I, you know, I said, I, I've realized pretty early on I'm a pretty driven person, but you know, I mean, I haven't always been that way athletically. You know, well, I mean, you how know, did I you was a, when did this happen that you became this ultra? Well, you know, I, I swear, I, I, I talked to my wife about this a couple times. I think I'm living my life backwards. <laughs> I think I'm living my life backwards because uh, I golfed, you know, from the time I was, you know, 25 till 45, it was all golf. <laughs> you know? I think you played one of my tournaments once. Oh, more than one. Yeah. 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 And then when I turned 50, all of a sudden, you know, you turn into ultra marathoner and endurance athlete. It was like, well, wait a minute. You're supposed to, that's backwards. You're yeah. supposed to do it the other yeah. way. But, you know, I got, I, I mean, obviously I was an athlete in school right. to some degree. And it, that was always kind of the battle for me. Music sports, music sports, music sports. Um, maybe it's because I'm a Libra. Maybe I'm trying to balance. Oh, God, things. you're a Libra. Oh, yeah. You say that as if it's a bad thing uh, there. Uh-oh. But. <laughs> You know, always trying to balance those things out. And I was an okay athlete. I mean, I wasn't anything to write home about. I was a good baseball player and pretty good wrestler. Uh, so, you know, I, but I was always the gym rat, you know, I liked being in the gym, you know, I, and I, I'm still this way to a degree. I, I prefer the workouts to the event. I just do. I like, I like the idea of working out and, you know, achieving in that thing more than the event, mm -hmm. more often than not. So I got into it. Uh, it was right as I was turning 50, 49, 50, somewhere around there. And this was just totally on a chance. I mean, totally on off, off the wall thing. I was at a house party here with one of my neighbors and another guy who kind of works out and he was working out at the time. Mm -hmm. And so just offhanded comment, he goes, yeah, hey, uh, this summer we're going to swim Alcatraz. And I was like, they let you do that? That wasn't your first swim, was it? That was my first swim. Oh my God. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to do that. I, I want to do that. I, I didn't even know they allowed you to do that. I can't wait. I'm going to do that. Now I hadn't swam. I've never swam competitively and hadn't swam to that point. I mean, just, you know, go to the pool, you know, a couple yeah. back and forths, you know, but I'd never swam. I'd certainly never swam open ocean water. That's for sure. Uh, short of maybe just surfing and things sure. like that. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll be able to self-train for that. <laughs> no, no. So I self-trained for about three months and just failed horribly at it. And finally, you know, was wise enough to go, you know, even my partner goes, just go get a tri-coach. I get there's a great one here in town. I'll hook you up with her. And hooked me up with this woman named Ann Wilson here who was just absolutely sensational. I mean, I went from being able to swim about maybe 400 meters before I gassed out to up to about a mile and a half, two miles in a period of about four months. I mean, she That's got me going amazing. so yeah. great. I mean, it, it, you know, you know it because you're a swimmer. 
how much form is a piece of it, you know? Yeah. So, and I'm a pretty good student. I, I don't mind saying, so, you know, it worked out pretty good. And, and I, I crushed it. I absolutely crushed Alcatraz. I, I think I finished in the top 200 of that. Wow. Uh, and as you get older, there's less people in your age group. So there's more <laughs> chance that you can get something. You know, it's kind of a dubious honor to win your <laughs> age group. You know, when you're in your sixties, it's like, yeah, I beat a bunch of other 60 year olds. Yeah. That's cool. That's well, great. I swam masters um, for a long time and I would swim against women who are probably like my age now and I would lose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my, my only open water experience was at uh, Folsom Lake. It was a two mile open water. Yeah, I I am not made for open water. Um, it's I a different it. thing, man. It really is. I need ends of the pool that I can do flip turns, <laughs> and I need to see the line on the bottom of the pool. I, I cannot. <laughs> it it is amazing water. how attached you get to that line. Yep. You know, even training, like like when we're if we're doing open water training in the pool, we try to do it eyes closed. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's a great Absolutely. idea. Eyes yeah. closed, count your strokes, know when you're at the wall, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So, you know, luckily here in Arizona, there's all kinds of places to open water train. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a lot of places up here where I'll ride up and open water train and swim. We just started this thing called Swim Run. I guess it's the, the latest, greatest thing where yeah. you outfit yourself where you can run and swim. So, like, if you're in the water swimming, you have your shoes on, you have everything that you're going to carry when you run. Hi. So you'll swim, you know, mile, get out somewhere, run trail run for mile two, get back in the water, swim. Another mile. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I love it. That's nuts. Triathlons. Why'd you do that? Why didn't you just pick swimming or biking or running? Why do you do all three? Because anything worth doing is worth overdoing, Karen. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, <laughs> Uh, I got, to, I, I mean, along with the swimming thing, you know, I started picking up other things. Like I started doing Spartan and I, I actually right, did world's, yeah. world stuff as mudder for two years, mm -hmm. which was really, I mean, you want to talk about crazy. That's it's 24 hour endurance races, you know? So, uh, but you know, it just, it was just part of the progression. It just seemed like part of the progression. It's like, okay, well, if I got the swim down and I, I, I've learned over time of doing triathlons that this is a common mentality. If I can just conquer the swim. I could do a triathlon. This is this is faulty thinking. But it's mostly <laughs> most triathletes their weakest part is it is swim. it is. But you know, triathlon. I learned this at Ironman too. I got I got fed this lesson really hard. So Ironman, Ironman. in on the Big Island. I didn't. I haven't gone to the Big Island. I, I don't know if I'll ever get to the Big Island. I don't think I have the times to do that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the Ironman is all about the run. It yeah. is all about the run, being able to get off that bike and run the marathon or the half marathon, whichever discipline you're doing. And I've, I've trained with plenty of guys that are great runners. I think if I could just conquer that swim, I could do that. And they just get crushed on the run because of having to swim and, you know, not understanding how much you deplete when you're swimming, not understanding how much you deplete when you're on the bike. And they, you know, they don't fuel properly, whatever, and sure. can't finish the run, you know. Well, it swims only 2.1 miles, right? Yeah. So what's the big deal? It's only <laughs> 2.1 miles, you know. It, you know, it's, it's not a big deal other than when you think about it in the context of an 8 or a 12 or even a 14-hour segment. You know, especially here in Arizona where it's hot, you yeah. don't realize how much you're depleting in that water. Because, you know, you don't realize you're sweating. You don't no. realize all that, yeah. you know. And then you get on the bike and the air's moving. You don't realize you're sweating, but you are. Mm -hmm. And you can deplete really, really fast 
uh, you know, halfway through that bike, you can be, yeah. you can be out of juice. I could maybe know. get through the swim and that would be it. Okay. So I checked I think out. Another swim I did that, sorry, okay. that's oh, really ahead. cool. If you ever get a chance to do it is the North shore, South shore Tahoe. Okay. But that there's no lines in the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you a rope. We'll get you a rope. Just hold onto the rope, Karen. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. I, I looked at your uh, website and, uh, I love Please these. Be kind. I, no, I love these quotes because I went to, of course, the events part. Uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. And learn to run towards a challenge, not away from it. Yeah. I thought I those spoke to me because everything I do is out of my comfort zone, and I figure it's got to be better because I'm not in my comfort zone. That's where all the growth takes place. Right. And I also liked HTFU. Yes. So why don't you? I had to ask what that meant and I found out. So why don't you say what that means and why are these thoughts important to you? Why do you, enough that you would have them on your website? Yeah. Well, you know, the, I mean, if you think about it, really all of those quotes are about, are centered on mental toughness, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, you want to talk about being on the road and working under high pressure situations, the mentally tough survive that. Right. They do. Yeah. And, you know, I even go back, you know, that you talk about, you know, running toward challenges as opposed to away from them. Uh-huh. That's what got me one of my, one of my biggest first gigs. You know, when I was approached about doing Def Leppard, I was approached along with about another five or six engineers to do that. And they were going to try to do a metal tour in the round, never been done before. And they asked everybody that was, that they was in the pool, hey, can we do this? And everybody to a man, except for me, said, no, no, that'll never work. You can't do that. I was like, of course we can do it. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's go, let's go figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what that builds to. And, you know, I think if the athletic portion of my life right now over the past 12 years now has shown me anything, it's like with the right mindset, right training, right coaching, you, there's nothing you can't do. There's nothing you can't do. It just, right. It's just preparation and, and going after it. And not being scared of it. You know, if you fall down, get back up and go again. I, you know, it's just that you got to be that mentally tough about it. And I think even if you are scared of it, you still got to keep walking that forward. That means you have to do it. Yeah. Yep. What does HTFU mean? Well, it's stolen from the bicycle community. Mm-hmm. And I think it's rule seven. Okay. Uh, you know, they, if you look it up, there's a whole list of bike rules okay. uh, for cyclists. And it's about leveling up and it's called harden the fuck up. And it just means when you're getting ready to quit or you're getting ready to cry or complain, hey, harden up, let's go. Right? Right. So Definitely. almost all of the events I've done, you know, that's kind of the mindset of them. It's like, there's going to be a point where you're going to think you're going to need to quit and you need to not quit. You just need to keep going. Yeah. When you were talking earlier about, uh, you were comparing, uh, being an athlete and work. It's so funny because I was going to actually talk about that because I think there's really a hard parallel between the two being successful in working out, uh, competing, whatever you're doing and a work ethic, how you work, how you deal with other people. I was always in team sports. Yeah. So there were people on my team I did not like, but you got to lift them up. Gotta lift them up because you as a team will win. If yes, you're divided, yes. then you will not accomplish what you need yeah. to. Yeah. 
you think a lot of that's carried over from your that background to your work? Of course, yeah. I, I mean, the parallels to me are, I, like I just mentioned, the mental toughness for yeah. sure has to be there. But you're not born knowing how to do it. It takes reps. You got to put in the work. You have to put in the work. I, and if I saw, if I see one common thread throughout a lot of people that are coming into the business now, versus, even versus when I was coming in, mm-hmm. is that they seem to want to get to the upper levels. They want to attain success too fast. Uh-huh. It's like, no, you got to put in the time. You know, like in sports terms, they call it carrying bags, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you got to carry bags for a while. Yeah. And then, then you're going to get your shot, you know? Right. And, you know, even talking to the craft students and other students that I've talked to, it's like, look, when you come out of school, you're going to have this really bright, shiny toolbox of great tools. You're not a carpenter yet. You know, you've got to build some things for a while. So you learn all the ins and outs of it. And you got to fail for a while. Right. I mean, you absolutely got to build some awful things for a while until you build something beautiful. And you need to take advantage of being able to do that without any spotlight on you. The worst thing that could happen to you right now is get the Rolling Stones tour at the age of 21. You know, right. you're not going to be allowed to fail there. Right. Know? So you got, you, you got to welcome it. You got to, you got to run toward failure a little bit and, and let it teach you. You know, what was your biggest failure that you learned the most from? Probably that gig where I got fired, you know, for, mm-hmm. for the personality. I don't, I don't even want to call it a personality clash. We just, I, I had no tools to deal with the guy. Right. And, you know, for me, the proving point for me, really, whether I had made that transition or not, was I was thrown right back into an, another situation with a guy who was very similar. I, you know, working for Prince in the, the late 90s, a very similar situation to that initial situation. Mm-hmm. And I had developed a lot of tools over. 15 years there, yeah. you know, and handled that way, way differently, mm-hmm. handled it very successfully, you know? So that was kind of a, that was kind of a little, we can tick the box a little bit and go, right. okay, yeah, we got that one. Yeah. Right. You're married. You've been married for a while. Yes. And you have three kids? Now? Three kids. Yes. A daughter, uh, two sons. Daughter, two sons. Uh, daughter Carly lives in San Francisco now. She's married and lives there now. She was, I actually got her, I shouldn't say I got her on. This is a good story. Uh, she went to FITM in San Francisco and uh, was a valedictorian graduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she had a big future ahead of her in fashion and styling and stuff like that. And when she graduated, <laughs> my wife says, well, why don't you just put her on the tour with Tom? Like, you know, like I'll just call and go, oh, here's what we're doing. So long story short, I was able to get her on the tour and she, she did the final tour for Tom Petty as the stylist, you know, it was, it was really an amazing, an amazing thing to be able on the road with your daughter, especially after her growing up on that tour for 15 years. Yeah. Are your sons in the same line of business or? No, my, uh, my middle son, Ethan, he's out of house. He's been out of school, high school a couple of years now. He's just working in the retail sector. He's a full-on skateboarder. He is uh-huh. a skater dude, man. And he is a good skater, too. Boy, he is really, really something. Is he going to compete? We have some good... You know, he never got to the point of competing. He was in competitions, mm-hmm. and just it just never really clicked for him. He's a street skater, and he wanted to be in that whole street league kind of yeah. thing, and is really good at it. And, but he's doing a lot of video work now, so he's he's actually considering getting into video editing and video production at some point here. So oh, very cool. We'll see that if that works out. Okay. And then my third son, Jackson, just graduated high school, and he is 
a gamer beyond gamer. I mean, he is going to end up being probably a gaming programmer or something. Uh -huh. It wouldn't surprise me to see him start writing games at some point. I mean, he's that into it. So, but he is, you know, 24 hour game boy. With the pandemic, everything shut down as we're yeah. all aware. You seem to immediately go into doing online stuff. I know you have a couple of programs going on. How did you transition so quickly? That's a question I get a lot. It's, I was like upset and depressed for about four days because everything <laughs> yeah. I had canceled. And yeah, I was supposed here. to have the best year. I had new clients. I was planning all these trips and nothing. But then I realized after four days, well, if I don't fix this, I'm not going to have a job. So I love what I do. So I'm just going to figure this out. You answered my question. I mean, you answered the question for me. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, you know, I, I said to Mary Jo, this was probably in late January, maybe early February. I was like, I have never had a year like this. I, I'm completely booked through December. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have to look for another gig right now at all. I, between Avid and these other shows, I, I'm booked. And 45 days later, all gone. All gone. And, and I kind of saw it coming. I, 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 I feel confident in saying this. You know, when this started to happen, and, you know, I started to realize, okay, this is, they're talking about a, a pandemic here. I was like, okay, this is not going to go good for our industry here. Mm -hmm. Now, now that said, I, I don't think I realized, I don't want to say this. I don't think I realized how, how shut down it was going to be. Yeah. Maybe that's the right way to look at it. You know, I mean, it, it really, because, you, you know, I mean, typically entertainment has always survived like downturns in the market, you know, that right. that's always been the place where people go to survive the thing. Mm -hmm. And that was not going to be allowed to happen here. You know, right. I remember thinking, Oh man, this is going to be for real here. And then a few months into it, I was just like, okay, this is going to be bloody. This is really, really going to be bloody. And it was, I, I think I'm like you where it was just like, you know, I, I got to find a way to survive here. And again, I keep coming back to that mentality of, you know, hardening up and stuff. There's another thing that goes along with it, you know, where you, you either see things as a challenge or you see them as an opportunity, you know, mm -hmm. and I definitely saw it as an opportunity. And I, I tried to present it that way to the industry, especially the industry I work in, which was sound reinforcement. I was like, guys, you know, if you can survive it financially, this is going to be a huge advantage for you because our industry has been booming. I, I mean, and growing like crazy mm -hmm. technically, right? I mean, live sound reinforcement today is a pretty complex discipline. I mean, between acoustics and elect the electronics end of it, you know, the technology end of it, it is very complex and it's outgrown the users by mm -hmm. a long stretch. Like it's way beyond the average user base. And I was like, this is going to be an opportunity for everybody to catch up. This is going to be an opportunity to go back to school, you know, and, and whether you actually go into a school or you're doing it online, whatever, but get up to speed on all of this stuff now. You've got a break. Now, let's all get in there and dig in and learn about the stuff that we've been challenged with out on the road now for the past five, 10 yeah. years. That's what Pooch said. And he said, he said it many times is that if you're not learning while this is all happening and you come back without more knowledge, you didn't do this right. You didn't do it right. And you're farther behind now. Yeah. That, that's going to be the amazing part of it. Because as you know, from what we're doing right here, right now, the thing that took hold was streaming. Yeah. It was like, well, you know, I mean, think about what streaming was in the entertainment world pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was kind of this niche fringe 
thing. Yeah, that's kind of cool what they're doing, but whatever, you yeah. know, go do that if you want to. Yeah, we might make a little bit of money on it. Streaming is going to be a part of everything from yeah. now on going yeah. forward, period. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. It's going to be a part of every event. There's always going to be a streaming option available for everything. So we had to learn how to do it, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, at, now all of a sudden you got to learn all the ins and outs of all the streaming business, uh, let alone the Zooms and all the other stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm just talking about, you know, audio and video production by a stream. Right. Yeah. One thing I've noticed about you is that you give back a lot, whether yeah. you're doing some race that's raising money for, you know, kids with cancer or the pet tillman. Yeah. And you've done my speed mentoring. What compels you to be giving back? Uh I am going to go all the way back to my first meeting with Russell Pope because I mean, he just, you know, here I was kind of walking out of the building, standing right next to this huge thing, sitting in the middle of the audience, staring at it going, what the hell is this? And I mean, he could have just brushed me aside and said, Hey kid, get out of here. But he just said, Hey, you want to come up and have a look around? You want to know what this is? And he took me, that that 15 minutes right there, I mean, it set me on my path. It changed my life. And I've never forgotten that. Never. And, you know, you can ask anybody, if you're at a show, or if I'm at a show and I'm working, whatever, and you come up and say, you want to ask me a question or something, well, it's not, not during the show. Right. I'm going to answer it for you, you know? And I mean, I even did that on the Tom Petty tour. That was kind of a staple of the Tom Petty tour. We had these things called sound check events. Uh-huh. And, I, you know, I had alter, ulterior motives with it because I wanted to promote the Avid products and uh-huh. Uh, the EAW products, but I, we would have as many as 50 or 60 people wow. show up at 10 a.m. Uh-huh. and be there until 6 p.m. And I would be full on demonstrating everything that we do to set up a PA system and tune it and virtual sound check and everything. I probably, uh-huh. I, over the course of my 25 years with Petty, I bet I ran conservatively 4,000 people through that. Wow. That's amazing. You know, so, you know, I, 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 I think at, at the core, I always understood what the impact that it had on me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, let's respect that and understand the impact that it could have on somebody else as well and give it back. I mean, right. Brief. So, yeah, that, that's been an easy thing for me. That, that doesn't take any work to do that. And I figure if, I, if I'm working out, I might as well make some money for something else. <laughs> if I'm going to be working out anyway, I might as well do some sponsors <laughs> for right. it. It's more motivation. Well, see, yeah. it'd be more motivation for me. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you need motivation. Uh, some some mornings, yes. Okay, community. I ask everyone, what does community mean to you? Oh boy, that's so hard today. I mean, we're living in such a man, su- such a tough time for community because you know what it ends up being is tribes. You know, it's not it's not community in the traditional sense. I, you know, in my mind, in my mind, community means all the tribes can live together. And support the community, right? But right now, that's just, that just does not seem to be the case, you know. So, uh, community is a collective thought, and it, you know, it's where differences can live and still thrive, but not threaten the community. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's very much like a tour community. I mean, you know, when you're on tour, it is a community. There are a lot of varied interests there, but the collective has to get the thing done every day and make it great. You know, so if we could, if we could model that in society, boy, wouldn't that be great? It's like a team sport. <laughs> okay, so this is how I end. Well, I don't usually, I don't always end it this way. Let's say I'm coming to see you, and it could be Arizona or anywhere that you like in the world. 
and we're going to, you have to tell me where I'm going and then tell me what we're going to be eating, what we're going to be drinking and what are we going to be talking about? Oh my gosh. Okay. So this is my favorite question. Location, dinner, drinks, conversation. Yes. That's it. Yeah. I could give you more. (laughs) Well, it would end up being more for sure. Um, Okay. Let me just give me a moment to process. Now you notice it's dead air time, but it's okay. I know. Uh, oh man, I, I'm just going to shoot from the hip here. I'm just going to take instinctively what comes to my mind. Okay. We're going to be in Tuscany. We're going to be eating the best Italian food on the market in the world. We're going to be drinking the best wine in the world. And we're not going to be talking about politics. We're going to be talking about life. And maybe some sports. Maybe a little sport. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll compare workout regimens okay yeah i guess i better your swim routine next week Karen? <laughs> i'm swimming 100 sprints oh no i just swim straight through i do i do sets of 300s yeah you ever do any ladders or anything any swim ladders no I just oh, those are good those are really good for you no because then you have to look at the clock and all this Technology. Well, I you haven't got but... the heads up display goggles yet. You haven't got those? Come on, those are awesome. <laughs> well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been really fun to hang out and chat with you. Always awesome connecting with you. I, I every time we we are together in the same room, I always have a great. I always walk out of there feeling good. So thank you, Karen. You're you're a, you're a bright light in our business. Thank you for being there. Thanks for listening to this episode of One and Done. Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests and subscribe to our KMD Pro weekly resource guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie Lamont. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.